And welcome into 444.com's The Most Accurate Podcast. Uh, John Paulson and I have been off for the last uh, week or two, maybe two weeks now, but it's good to be back. John, how you doing? I'm not doing bad. How you doing, Anthony? Good, good. Lots to, lots to kind of go over. We'll start yeah. off with the, the music, and then we'll kind of explain what we're going to do, because it's not going to be a full breakdown of the championship games, although we will get to some fantasy stuff relating to the AFC and NFC championship games and maybe, maybe a, a couple of picks, but... Before we do any of that, John, tell us about the music. Yeah, this is a track uh, by Matt Mason um, called Cringe. And it came out, there's a, like an acoustic version that came out in 2017. A regular version came out in 2017. It's also on the, uh, 28, his 2018 uh, single, The Mask. Uh, but it's making its round on alt-rock alt radio now. And uh, check it out. I'll put it on the uh, Most Accurate Podcast playlist on uh, Spotify. Beautiful. What we're going to do is we're going to do a 2018 fantasy retrospective, but let's quickly cover all the coaching changes that went down across the league uh, since the last time John and I were doing a pod. We're going to focus on the offensive start side of the ball, and I kind of want your, your thoughts, John, on play callers and you know how this impacts maybe some fantasy players that we know are going to be in the same spots. But we'll start off with your guy, Matt LaFleur, uh, he's the new head coach of Green Bay. He was a protege of Kyle Shanahan at one point and uh, was the quarterback's coach in Atlanta for Kyle Shanahan before moving over to L.A. under Sean McVay. Most recently, he was the offensive coordinator for the Tennessee Titans. The Titans offense, at least statistically, took a step back last last year, which caused a lot of people to scratch their heads about the hire in Green Bay. But we'll, we'll start off there. Your thoughts on Matt Lafleur? How this impacts Aaron Rodgers and the Packers? And I have a feeling you, you're going to comment about the Sean McVay coaching tree. Yeah, <laughs> it's basically all it <laughs> the, is, right? The Sean McVay. Uh, I had lunch with him. Tree, right? Yeah. Uh, so, so of the McVay proteges or people that have worked with them or the tree, maybe at this point, I think Matt Lafleur of the guys that are being hired in this go around probably has the best track record now it's not a huge track record uh i give him a small pass or i give him a a medium pass i guess on the what happened with tennessee this year i would like to have seen a you know a healthy marcus mariota for 16 games um i would like to have seen delani walker in this offense uh you know those two injuries i think kind of set the team back and then he didn't really uh you know, settle on Derrick Henry until towards the end of the season. He, it was a Deion Lewis, Derrick Henry, and that might have not been his decision. Uh, you know, who to and how many touches to be divvying up between those two players because the team signed Deion Lewis uh, in free agency, and that kind of you know, I think Deion Lewis is good, but the running the game didn't get going until they started to feed Derrick Henry the ball. So, uh, from my standpoint, I was hoping they would get a youngish uh, offensive mind that would use some creativity to, you know, in, uh, you know, inject some creativity into this offense. Um, so I'm actually pretty happy with the hire. Uh, I was pretty stoked when they were interviewing Todd Monken as the, as the OC. I thought that would have been 
a lot of fun and a really good hire, but he ended up, uh, we'll talk about him later. They ended up with uh, Nathaniel Hackett as the new OC. They've never worked together, him and LaFleur. Uh, but, you know, Hackett had a pretty good, a couple of years of pretty good offense with Jacksonville. He made Blake Bortles look good one season. So, uh, you know, I'm cautiously optimistic. What do you ta- What's your take on the LaFleur or, in general, the McVay uh, coaching tree this offseason? <laughs> Yeah, yeah, uh, Sean McVay's barista, I think, got a call at one point, right? That was one of the jokes. So that's that's been kind of funny. I'll tell you my overall thoughts before I dive into Matt LaFleur. You know, John, if if you're going to hire a defensive guy, and we have we saw a lot of defensive court, de- previous defensive coordinators that became head coach, head, head coach at some point lose their job, right? So whether it's Todd Bowles or Steve Wilkes after only one year in Arizona, a lot, of, a lot of former good defensive coordinators that became head coaches, they, they lost their gigs, in large part because of Sean McVay. Teams want a guy that not only will bring a, an offensive system to be put in place, and, and you know that's the, that's the direction of the league now, but if I'm an owner or I'm a general manager, I don't want to have the guy like Atlanta did in Kyle Shanahan and lose him to San Francisco. Mm-hmm. And then you bring in Steve Sarkeesian, and now i got to replace him two years in because – I didn't like what he was doing, and it becomes this this cycle. And and no offense to any defensive coordinator that has paid his dues, like a Vic Fangio who got fi- finally got his opportunity to be a head coach in Denver. But I want, not especially nowadays, I want my head coach to be my play caller to team up with the the quarterback so that I have my offensive system in place. And you look at even uh, Steve Wilkes in Arizona, and this isn't all on him. Uh, the general manager, Steve Keim, had, hasn't done a great job with his drafts, and there wasn't a lot of talent in Arizona. But Steve Wilkes, this defense, this supposed to be this defensive guy, Arizona finished in the bottom half of the league in uh, def- the defensive statistics this year. So I, the wave now of the league is going in an offensive direction. The, the talent pool wasn't that deep. So you get a Matt LaFleur who, in my eyes, probably wasn't ready to become an offensive coordinator last year, but Tennessee knew what they knew, knew what he uh, did under Shanahan and McVay and wanted to expedite the process here, take the risk. The Packers are essentially doing the same thing. He might, mm-hmm. be, he might not be ready to, to be a head coach, might not be ready to, to lead a team, but I'd rather, if I'm a general manager, I'm an NFL uh, ownership group, I would rather roll the dice on an offensive guy as opposed to a Steve Wilkes or, or a Todd Bowles that are going to come in and be a defensive coordinator. And I, I've got to, I've got to make two hires now. I've got, to find the DC, I've got to find the head coach and I've got to find the OC. I like the risk for Green Bay. Lafleur West Coast scheme, um, you know, so Aaron Rodgers is going to be familiar with the, those, West Coast, those West Coast schemes. And, you know, whether it was Robert Griffin III when Matt LaFleur worked in, mm-hmm. under Mike Shanahan or, or Marcus Mariotti uh, uh, a year ago, LaFleur has been working with mobile quarterbacks. So I think this is a nice fit. Yeah, it may, it may eventually bust or it might, it may take some time. But if you hit on the Matt LaFleur, now you got him for the next 10-plus years, hopefully. Yeah, I mean, you, you, I don't know if you mentioned Matt Ryan. Uh, right. Was it his MFL, MFL or NFL MVP season Lafleur was the quarterback coach for the Falcons correct yep. uh so he's got that experience he's got the experience of Robert Griffin the third in his best season um so that's pretty interesting and I, your point you were as you were making it I was about to make the same point in that I saw somebody say it on Twitter if you have a good offensive coordinator under a defensive coach that guy gets plucked away or taken away 
um, to be a head coach pretty often, and now you have to find a new OC to run an offense under your head coach that's a defensive mind. So the, it creates a constant uh, rotating doors you know, of, of offensive coordinators, and they have to learn a new system or, or whatever, and it, it kind of sets the offense back every time you have to hire a new OC. So you might as well have the, the offensive play caller be your head coach if you can. So exactly. All right, so let's move on. Let's try to burn through these. No problems. All right, Cliff Kingsbury to the Cardinals. Again, my, my point my point stays with this as well. I realize he got fired at Texas Tech, and that was his alma mater. So, oh, look, what are the Cardinals doing? But, again, I'd rather take the risk with the Cliff Kingsbury knowing the direction of the league. Uh, this is an interesting fit, and we'll see if, you know, he was serious about the Kyler Murray situation where, hey, if I had the number one overall pick, I would take him. That was probably a lot of coach speak at that point. But with Josh Rosen, Rosen's got a, a, a lot of talent. He just doesn't have a lot of talent around him. But it's an interesting fit with uh, Cliff Kingsbury going to the Cardinals. Yeah, what I read about him was that, you know, good offensive mind. His teams, Texas Tech's teams, were really, had really good offenses and scored a lot of points, but he couldn't recruit uh, defensive talent to the teams. And I may be just, you know, regurgitating what I read. Uh, but maybe this is worth the roll, you know, roll of the dice. All of a sudden, if this pans out, Arizona has a good offense, and you just need to find a defensive coordinator to coach up the defense. Uh, let's move on to Rams QB coach Zach Taylor. He's likely to become the new head coach for the Bengals. Another situation where <laughs> there's a team that is that is not even taking a coordinator at this point. They're reaching all the way to uh, Sean McVay's quarterback coach. But again, another young mind. We'll see if he can call plays. Out of all of the ones, I mean, with the, the fact that Zach Taylor wasn't even a, a coordinator, this one seems to be the biggest risk of all, but it falls in line with what we've been saying of finding that offensive guy first and then hoping he can install the defense. Yeah, and then you're, this is not just McVay, although, you know, these guys have some relation to McVay. Um, you know, Doug Peterson won a Super Bowl. Uh, you know, Matt Nagy turned around the Bears. Uh, the offense was significantly better this season. So it's, a, it's the trend. It's not just McVay, but it's happening all over where these offensive minds are getting promoted to uh, head coach jobs. And most of them are panning out. And so the other teams are going to, are going to copy that. Freddie kitchens was promoted to head coach of the Browns with the work that he did uh, mid season after Hugh mm-hmm. Jackson and, and uh, Todd Haley were let go. John, I mean, this is, this this one makes a lot of sense. It's not as, as the Kitchens didn't have head coaching experience, but they're trying to pair up Baker Mayfield with the guy that he had success with, which was Freddie Kitchens. And he also brought up, you had brought up this name before, uh, Todd Monken, who called plays for the Buccaneers last year. It was Dirk Cutter's system, but Todd Monken was calling the plays. And he had a lot of success in Tampa with both Jameis Winston and Ryan Fitzpatrick. So the, it looks like Baker Mayfield is going to have some stability heading into his second year. Yeah, I actually have some numbers for for this. I mean, Mayfield's splits with Kitchens as the play caller are pretty stark. Uh, without Kitchens, uh, five-plus games, 58% uh, completion, 6.6 yards per attempt, 2.6 touchdown rate, uh, 14.0 points per game in fantasy, uh, in terms of fantasy points with uh, – in those games. And then with kitchens, nine games with him, 68% completion. So the completion rate goes up 10%, 8.57 yards per attempt. It's almost 2.0 yards per attempt more 
than without Kitchens. 7.2 touchdown rate, basically doubled that, and 19 uh, points per game for him. He was uh, Baker Mayfield was the number 10 fantasy quarterback in that span, so I think you're going to see his his ADP in the top 10 uh, heading into 2019, which is kind of crazy, but uh, makes sense. Uh, and also with Monken in there, uh, the average the Bucks averaged 315 passing yards, 95 rushing yards, 26.2 points per game when he was calling plays. There was one game where uh, Cutter took over the play calling. I think he's the team scored three points. Yeah. Uh, they, they, they did. Uh, <laughs> it's funny, but it's like uh, 500 they, yards, wasn't it? They did. Yeah. They had a ton of yards, uh, but didn't score. So it's just, you know, it depends on which stat you want to cherry pick there. Uh, they didn't, but they didn't put points on the board. Uh, so it looks like Freddie kitchens will probably uh, retain the play calling duties. You know, who knows if he's ready to actually lead a team or be the head coach. But uh, as you said, there's actually uh, you know, a nine game sample to look at with kitchens as a play caller for Baker Mayfield. And it worked out great. So I've been backing Adam Gase for a while, and I know yeah. he's he's become a punching bag for a lot of people. And I, I said, look, you know, if Miami, I remember doing a show, we, we do a weekend show here in, in uh, St. Louis throughout the football season, and I said to my co-host Brandon Kiley, who who is now back in Kansas City doing radio, I said, if if any if if Adam Gase gets fired in in Miami. I would scoop him up first and foremost. This is a guy that Mike Martz called uh, one of the better play callers. It was, it was probably two years ago. I think he was the, the OC with Chicago at the time. But mm-hmm. he said, you know, Martz was like, look, Adam Gase can call plays. This this guy's going to be a head coach at some point. So I keep backing him, keep backing him. Well, then Adam Gase becomes a meme where he's got the, the, the bug eyes going for uh, the, the introductory pr- press conference with the Jets. And I'm like, I, I – I can't win with him, but but listen, he he is a very good play caller, and now that he's got a quarterback as opposed to you know Ryan Tannehill who who has struggled and just he's never reached that next level, or a Jay Cutler who let's be honest didn't care once he got to South Beach. Hopefully now with Sam Darnold, Adam Gase can kind of show his chops as as an offensive play caller. Yeah, you're talking about a team that didn't have it really have a good quarterback, and he had him in the playoff hunt, you know, for most of his. Tenure there, I know he finished, uh, you know, six and ten in twenty seventeen, but they were ten and six in his first season there. Lost in the wild card uh, round, uh, and they were seven and nine this year. Not a whole lot of talent. Uh, the thing that concerned me about Gase as a head coach is that he just never fully committed to Kenyon Drake, and I, I thought that was a mistake. Yeah, they, yeah, right, and and you know, I, I know he got a lot of flack too for how that how the whole thing went down with Jai two years ago, and, and oh, Ajayi won the Super Bowl, and look, this is a guy Adam Gase didn't want. But there was some friction, I thought, in the middle of the season with Ajayi and the Eagles, too, uh, mm-hmm. where eventually they said, okay, well, they had to shut him down because he had the injury. But, you know, maybe Adam Gase wasn't totally at fault for the way things went down with Jay Ajayi. That's never that's uh, neither here nor there. Let's move on to Bruce Arians. So this is this is interesting. I love the hire of Bruce Arians yeah. with the Bucks, but now I see you know Byron Leftwich is the new OC, and Leftwich is going to be calling plays. Arians certainly knows better than than I do, John. But I would have I, I would have loved to see what Bruce Arians could do with Jameis Winston. But it's actually going to be Byron Leftwich is who who is the OC, and he replaced. McCoy out in Arizona when Mike McCoy was fired in the middle of the year. So Byron Leftwich at least has a half a season plus of calling plays. Yeah, I think Arian's uh, fingerprints will be all over this offense, though. Sure. And uh, I'm I'm really excited about this hire uh, with respect to Jameis Winston. Uh, he, po- he he scored over 20 points per, per game uh, in the games that he actually started and finished this season. And even though it was kind of an up-and-down season for him, uh, he's got a ton of 
a talent and from a fantasy standpoint where you don't worry so much about the interceptions, um, he's even better in a fantasy, uh, as, as your fantasy quarterback. So I looked, you know, because it's, it's me and it's my job. I looked at the early ADP for 2019 in the <laughs> mock drafts and, uh, he's going in the 12th round. And I tweeted out uh, yesterday, I think it was that, you know, give me all the Jameis Winston with Bruce Arians, uh, running things, uh, in, in Tampa, if he's, if he's going to be available that late in the draft, I think he's a fantastic weight on quarter, uh, weight on quarterback pick. Um, and if Arians, you know, I, I have, I have mixed feelings about this, but Arians is reportedly uh, recruiting uh, uh, Deshaun Jackson to come back, and if that happens, that's even it's one more weapon. I mean, you're talking about Chris Godwin, Mike Evans, uh, O.J. Howard, Cameron Brait, uh, and then Deshaun Jackson. Uh, it's just a, a load of weapons there for for Jameis Winston, and you know, I would like Jackson to move on for Chris Godwin's sake. Uh, you know, I, I think I would love to see him you know, as the number two option there in that, in that passing game. Um, but if they bring Jackson back, it's even better for Winston. Yeah. It, and, and listen, Winston is not without talent. I mean, there, I understand why Tampa has decided to give him another year, especially now that they've moved on from Dirk Cutter, uh, certainly a make or break year again for Winston. But uh, if that guy can ever flip the switch and the talent, you know, everything comes together for him and he, he stops being a knucklehead off the field that that could be that, that he's still got a good shot of being a franchise quarterback. Vikings interim offensive coordinator Kevin Stavansky is now the full-time OC for the Vikings. He obviously replaced John DeFilippo in the middle of the year, actually toward the end of the year when uh, they had that brutal game in Seattle and they couldn't move the ball until the end. But they also hired Gary Kubiak as the assistant head coach, which was really interesting because Kubiak was slated to be the the Denver offensive coordinator until Vic Fangio was there and they just couldn't couldn't come to terms on who to hire as their assistant. So Kubiak winds winds up in Minnesota. Uh, that's a very interesting situation. I mean, you got a guy in, in Gary Kubiak, John, who obviously has had a lot of success at this level. I wonder if, if it's only a matter of time before Kubiak's prints, to use your term, uh, are all over that Minnesota offense. Yeah, you look at what uh, the, the the Vikings did under uh, Stefanski, and they just went from uh, a pass heavy offense, forty point three pass attempts. 21.1 rush attempts under uh, De uh, Filippo. Uh, we got two names here that I'm not used to pronouncing: Stefanski and De Filippo. <laughs> uh, but so, so bear with me. Uh, you know, basically two thirds uh, pass for most of the season, and then Zimmer had had enough and put in uh, Stefanski, and basically they went to a 50-50 split: 27.3 pass attempts, 27.7 rush attempts. One of the few teams that's running the ball more than throwing the ball. The Vikings. So this is a big downgrade for uh, Kirk Cousins and the passing game in general, Adam Thielen, uh, Stefan Diggs, and it's a big upgrade for Dalvin Cook if this uh, mentality, this run-first mentality stays there in Minnesota. The pace also slowed down from 61.4 plays per game to 55 uh, plays per game under Stefanski. So uh, just fewer fantasy points are going to be available in Minnesota if this continues. Uh, so Dirk Cutter was hired by the Falcons as their offensive coordinator. He returns. They also hired Mike Malarkey to be their tight ends coach. Malarkey was their previous offense coordinator before Cutter. So I don't know if Bobby Petrino is available still or maybe a June Jones or you know they go all the way back to Jerry Glanville or Dan Reeves. Maybe they just bring them all back, John. 
Uh, if you were an OC or head coach at any point for the Falcons, maybe just bring on back. This one doesn't make a lot of sense to me outside of the fact that, yeah, Cutter did have some success with Matt Ryan. And, you know, I, I know you got a note here about the uh, NFC Championship game back in 2012. And Cutter did have some success. Where I'm thrown off is that apparently they really wanted Gary Kubiak. So Kubiak was going to stay in Denver. They blocked Atlanta from having an interview. So they wind up with Dirk Cutter. And he didn't even call the plays last year, as we just illustrated. It was Todd Munkin in Tampa Bay. Not to say that he can't call an offense. He, he has he has loads of experience. But Dan Quinn also spent the entire offseason, or the first part of the offseason, uh, talking about how he wanted to run the ball more. And Dirk Cutter is basically four verticals every play, throw the ball deep. Uh, so I don't really understand where the, that running game comes in. It's kind of an odd fit. I'm not suggesting that it won't work out, but I, I think that Dan Quinn is kind of on the hot seat now. When you if, if this if this hire of Dirk Cutter does not work, so your your concern is that it, the fit with uh, with Dan Quinn. Yeah, yeah, I, I exactly. And, and you know, John, not to get on a rant, I won't go too far on this. I promise. But you, you, Pete Carroll, we just saw Pete Carroll, who is defensive defensive coach by nature, bring back Brian Schottenheimer. Why? Because he knew Brian Schottenheimer was going to run the football down everybody's throats. That worked fine in the regular season, got to the postseason, they were one and done. It just, to me, you do have to throw the ball vertically. That's, that's something that Dirk Cutter will do. However, defensive coordinators, I feel like, or uh, defensive coaches by nature, they just want to protect their defense. And maybe I'm just Jeff, Jeff Fisher blind because I, I, I was used to covering him for years. But he didn't really care what the offense did. Run the football, protect the defense, bleed clock. And I feel as though that you started off with Shanahan, you, you had Steve Sarkeesian come in. That didn't work out. And I think he got rid of Sarkeesian because he never ran the damn football. So now you bring back Cutter. You say you want to run the, the ball. I believe it. But Cutter, over the last couple of years, has shown you nothing in terms of the running game. So I, I just I don't know if Dan Quinn just said, screw it. Uh, i got to get the guy that matches up well with Matt Ryan. But something is off here. And this is, this is a hot take. I completely admit it. But I do wonder if the Falcons move on from Quinn a year from now if this doesn't work out. Yeah, I just would would point out that as the offensive coordinator for the uh, for the Falcons in his first three year stint, the Falcons averaged 363 yards per game, 277 passing yards per game, 24 points per game. Um, they went to the NFC Championship game in 2012, uh, 26.2 points per game that season. So he has had a success. And that's why he got that job in Tampa was what he was doing with the Falcons. But Absolutely. I understand what you're right. saying about uh, the fit with Dan Quinn. It makes sense. Yeah, I just I don't know if there's going to be, uh, you know, like in Minnesota where you had Mike mm-hmm. Zimmer, again, another defensive guy, John DeFilippo, they just they butted heads. He wanted to run the ball more, and then he's out the door. So we'll, we'll see what happens. Perhaps I'm not giving this, uh, you know, this higher enough credit. Greg Roman now becomes the new offensive coordinator of the Ravens. They, they replaced Marty Morningwig, who had been in Baltimore there for, for a while. They move on from him. What does this mean for Lamar Jackson and that Ravens offense moving forward? <laughs> More running? The, I'm, just, I'm just laughing because I'm just thinking of Greg Roman calling plays for the, you know, Lamar Jackson and, and the Ravens. And I, I, I just, a, a funny thought ran through my head that the, what it means is that I'm not drafting any pass catchers in Baltimore next no. season. Like, I don't even like John Brown. I love him, but there's just no way uh, the volume's just not going to be there. You remember what he did uh, with the bills, Roman and uh, San Francisco, super run heavy. 
his offenses have had an average ranking of 4.3 uh, in rush attempts and 31 in pass attempts. So this guy is like as run heavy as they get, uh, especially in this uh, in this uh, era of you know the passing game. Uh, so they're going to run a ton. I mean, I would not be surprised if they're with with Jackson and the design runs that they're you know 60 65 percent run next year. This is going to be incredible. Uh, as far as you know, zagging when everybody else is zigging, and if, if the Ravens can be, uh, you know, win play winning football with this sort of uh, uh, offensive attack. But the other thing to keep in mind is is that RB one in this offense is going to have a lot of value, and I don't know who it's going to be. It could be Kenneth Dixon after what he did towards the end of the season. You know, Alex Collins got injured; he was okay uh, for most of the season. Um, but you know, never really got a stranglehold on that job and got the the workload that he needed. But if they get a guy who's you know able to, you know, carry the ball eighteen to twenty two times and maybe catch a few passes, he's gonna have a lot of value. It's, there's just gonna be no value in this passing game except for Lamar Jackson, who's gonna run for sixty, seventy, eighty yards a, a game. Dan Quinn should have hired Greg Roman if he wanted to run the football. <laughs> Take their ball right out of Matt Ryan's hands. Uh, Julio Jones, uh, you know, Calvin yeah. Ridley, forget it. All that. Him. Yeah, exactly. All that investment in the wide receiver. Let's get Greg Roman in here. Uh, let's let's move on to Daryl Bevel, who becomes the OC for the Lions. And this was another, not to keep going back to Quinn, but this is another uh, kind of a, a match up there with Bevel and Quinn working together in Seattle. But they move on from Jim Bob Cooter. I I I don't I don't know the latest on him. I hope he winds up somewhere so we can keep saying his name. Uh, but Bevel. <laughs> Who had who had not been who has not been calling plays for the last couple of years since being fired in Seattle or well one year I should say um, this is another guy that's going to run the football a lot John yeah and Jim Bob Cooter kind of got a raw deal because they traded uh, Golden Tate away and then uh, Marvin Jones got injured and then he was playing with a short deck and, right uh, Matt Patricia Matt Patricia wanted uh, more running plays so we have another instance of of a head coach defensive minded head coach wanting to run the ball more and they do you know have some uh, the talent there, Kerryon Johnson had a good, um, good stretch there running the ball. So he's this is a you know a pretty good uh, uh, hire for him. I think you know his his stock goes up a little bit here, but you know I don't feel as good about uh, Matthew Stafford at all uh, or Kenny Galladay. You're looking at an average ranking of nine point three rush attempts for Bevel's offenses versus twenty three point five in pass attempts. So he's sort of a you know Greg Roman light. Um, if you look at what he did though with the Seahawks, he was pass friendly. Uh, in his last two seasons there, so it'll be interesting to see you know which, which bevel shows up there in, in Detroit. I'm guessing it's going to be the run-heavy guy uh, because that's what Patricia wants. One more, then we'll get to the 2018 fantasy retrospective. We mentioned this guy's name before. It's John Filippo, who had been like the the head coaching, the hot name in head coaching circles before the season. Like, watch out. After he does this with Kirk Cousins, he's going to get hired elsewhere. Well, he did get hired, but as an offensive coordinator, uh, after he was fired by Minnesota at the end of the year, he he becomes the new OC of the Jacksonville Jaguars. And there's so much that we don't know here because we don't know who the quarterback's going to be, John. Yeah, and it'd probably be Nick Foles. Or that's, what, that's, that's the rumor yeah, right maybe, now. Hey, maybe. Nick Foles needs to go start somewhere else. I mean, if he's the backup for the Eagles, that would be amazing <laughs> next year. You know, I think they could pay what's him. Going on. Like, yeah, I know. They got some weird contract with him. It's like $20 million or something. Anyway, um, you know, as the Browns OC, DiFilippo was 11th in pass attempts, 27th in rush attempts. Uh, the Vikings last year, 6th and 27th, respectively, so decidedly pass heavy. And you've got Tom Coughlin there, you know, running the team. And, um, this doesn't jibe real well, you know, a real pass heavy 
attack, but it is the way that the league is going. Maybe Coughlin recognizes that they have Leonard Fournette there. Uh, you know, they had their good season with the with the rock solid defense and a really strong running game. But I think maybe the plan is to get a good quarterback in there, maybe pass the ball a little bit more than uh, what they had in years past. All right, OC openings with defensive minded head coaches. They would be Denver. That's Vic Fangio. He's he's the new head coach. Miami's expected to sign or hire Brian Flores who is the defensive coordinator right now for the Patriots. And then Tennessee still has Mike Vrabel as their current head coach, obviously. But then Matt LaFleur, who we started the podcast with, he left to to, uh, fill the Green Bay vacancy. Any thoughts on OC openings? Well, this is we're talking about this because we need to pay attention to these hires because this will affect those fantasy players in those uh, with with those teams, since these are uh, the, the defensive minded head coaches, they they need somebody else to call offensive plays. So these are the important, the three important uh, OC jobs that are still uh, wide open. And uh, just to plug uh, T.J. Hernandez a little bit, my uh, partner in crime at uh, Four for Four, he does a great off season uh, series where he talks about each play caller and look, digs deep into their uh, trends and, and how they call plays based on the score and, and all that to kind of predict what uh, those teams will do uh, in, in 2019. So look out for those articles as they drop this summer. All right, 2018 Fantasy Retrospective. Let's hand out some awards. We'll do some fantasy MVPs, best values. John, let's go position by position and talk about some season-long and fantasy playoff standouts. We'll talk about quarterbacks. So who's your MVP and then who's some honor- honorable mentions? Well, i got to go with Patrick Mahomes. He didn't have the greatest uh, playoff uh, scoring, um, but he was drafted QB 16, uh, finished QB one. So he's the best value as well. Uh, he's the overall QB one, 25.9 points per game. He was pretty good in the playoffs QB three from week 14 to week 16. So I think if, if you drafted, if you told somebody who drafted him QB 16, uh, in, in August or something that he would be the QB three from week 14 to week 16, uh, they'd be pretty happy. But once you get into week 13, he's your number one quarterback. Maybe you're hoping for better numbers in the fantasy playoffs. Uh, but you know, I wrote an article in the off season that, you know, I think the title was something like, is Patrick Mahomes the answer to the question, uh, quarterback conundrum. And I think the answer is emphatically, yes, I could have just stopped the article at that point, but I, I, you know, and I didn't get him enough in my, in my drafts because I was, you know, my best ball and stuff uh, that was, you know, getting him later in the draft. And this happens every year where, you know, in May, uh, June, July, I'm getting guys where I want, you know, where I'm getting used to getting guys later in the draft. And then I'm pumping them up on Twitter and other people are pumping them up on Twitter. And next thing you know, they're going two or three rounds ahead of where they were, and it starts to, you start to feel uncomfortable drafting them that early. So uh, it, it's, it's, it happens to me every year, but i got to keep going with these guys that I like and, and draft. I think I had him pegged for uh, you know a real good chance at top 12 numbers, and he obviously blew that away. Uh, maybe you, know, you take more chances with a guy like this, the upside here, especially playing for Andy Reid, Tyree Kill, Travis Kelsey, you know, at the time they had Kareem Hunt as well, you know, able to catch passes. Um, maybe you take more chances uh, with guys like this at the quarterback position because you can get him in the ninth, tenth, eleventh, twelfth round, um, and and they could pay off in spades here. Uh, you know, with a QB one finish. And then uh, my honorable mentions, uh, Deshaun Watson. He was actually going fairly early in drafts. Uh, he drafted, you know, was drafted QB three, QB four. He ended up QB four, so he returned value. Uh, but he was the QB one 
from week 14 to week 16, he averaged 24, 25.7 points per game. So teams that got to the fantasy playoffs with Deshaun Watson as their quarterback, uh, probably did pretty well. Um, so he, he was my honorable mention there at, uh, at quarterback. All right, we'll go on to running backs. You got a couple of different categories here. You've got best values, you've got honorable mention, and then your overall MVP. So let's start off with the best values. Who wound up being the best values throughout the course of the fantasy season from the I running think, back position? Yeah, I think it, I think it stemmed from the whole Le'Veon Bell fiasco. But James Conner, obviously, people were drafting him, you know, double digit rounds. As uh, you know, I, th- I think I tweeted out uh, about James Conner. Um, there's a couple other players, uh, but you know, I think it was Rod Smith was one of them, and there was a third one that actually ended up playing some. But uh, you know, I, I tweeted that you know these guys are going in the 16th, 15th, 16th round. Um, you know, owners are you know betting that uh, the RB ones there are just uh, like t- the Terminator, and we're not going to get injured. But uh, Connor ended up uh, you know posting top five numbers while he was healthy. Uh, and then got injured toward late, and then you have Jalen Samuel stepping in for him. Uh, James White was a fantastic value that was boosted quite a bit by the Rex Burkhead injury, um, but he he was you know top fifteen uh, PPR, and then obviously Philip Lindsay was the the the, the uh, waiver wire pickup du jour uh, that after week one where he was uh, obviously going to be more involved than anybody thought. Uh, heading into the season, and he uh, returned pretty good numbers. He did fade a little bit down the stretch and didn't do as much towards the end of the uh, regular fantasy regular season, but uh, he was a you know, great pickup for those of us who, who, who pulled the trigger on him. Uh, all right, so some honorable mentions now before we get to your MVP. Yeah, I want, this is an interesting season. Uh, there's a number of guys that just popped up late, and me personally, I think I won two leagues with Damian Williams and C.J. Anderson as my backfield in Week 16. Uh, and so, I lo- and I lost a, a league it was because of Damian Williams. I lost the league on that Thursday night when the Chiefs played the Chargers. I, I went against Damian Williams and I had Tyree Kill and, and uh, Keenan Allen. And Allen, that was the night that he got hurt. So uh, uh, bad memories for me, good memories for you. But yeah, go ahead, go ahead. Yeah, I mean Damian Williams. I picked him up. I actually picked him up in our keeper league, Anthony. And I'm going to end up keeping him. Wow. Uh, he's got signed a two year extension. Uh, it looks like he's going to be the RB one in Kansas City. I mean, I don't know. Like they're they're treating him like it. Uh, he was the fantasy RB three from week fourteen to week sixteen. He had you know minimum of uh, nineteen points in those three weeks. He had thirty point three in week fifteen. I think that's the game you're talking about. Twenty five points in week sixteen. I'm sure he won- everybody who picked him up, almost everybody who picked him up, probably won their uh, fantasy championships. Uh, Derrick Henry obviously had that monster week fourteen game. That doesn't help you if you're just playing semis and and finals. But uh, he had a minimum of sixteen point two fantasy points in the fantasy playoffs. Uh, and then the list goes on. There's other guys, like I mentioned C.J. Anderson, 23.2 points in, in Week 16. Elijah McGuire was the, uh, the fantasy RB10 in the fantasy playoffs. Jalen Samuels was the fantasy RB11 uh, in the, in the, fan, in the uh, fantasy playoffs. So owners who dealt with some injuries and were on their toes and were able to pick up these guys uh, ended up having some very good results. And, and this is not something that you typically see this many uh, you know, other guys uh, emerging as uh, fantasy stars in the fantasy playoffs. All right, I don't have a drum roll, but uh, drum roll for your running back MVP. Yeah, I got to go with Christian McCaffrey. Uh, he was drafted QB 10. 
uh, towards the end of that first round, uh, one, two turn. And he ended up, uh, the overall RB one in, in PPR formats, 25.4 points per game. He was the uh, number two fantasy running back from week 14 to week 16 with 28 points per game. He came up big in week 15 with 26 points and then week 16 for 29.8 points. So just a huge season for him, uh, capped off with a great, uh, fantasy uh, playoffs, you know, Todd Gurley got injured, so that I think pushed uh, McCaffrey over the top here. All right, wide receivers. We'll start off with some best values. I, lo- I love the first name that you're going to mention. I-, I had an opportunity to cover him, and he, he was so steady throughout the year. Who's that? Uh, Robert Woods uh, was drafted wide receiver 31. He finished wide receiver 9. I think some of that uh, stemmed from the uh, injury to Cooper Cup, uh, but he was, the you know, the best uh, receiver there in in, uh, in LA for the for the Rams uh, the entire season and was pretty consistent the entire year. I think he had a, several straight you know straight games with seventy plus yards receiving. I don't have it in front of me, but he was real consistent. Uh, and then value wise, Tyler Boyd obviously you know benefited from the AJ Green injury and uh, even before that it was starting to put up some numbers. And then Tyler Lockett, I thought you know drafted wide receiver forty nine. Uh, ended up wide receiver 19, and he was a guy that I mentioned in my sleepers and values article as as a player that was going to uh, you know emerge and get more opportunity with the you know the, the way that the wide receiver uh, position panned out there in um, in Seattle. So uh, the Doug Baldwin injury had, helped him as well, and he wasn't a big volume guy, but he ended up with uh, uh, top 20 numbers there uh, due to his big playability. Honorable mentions for you? Yeah, MVP honorable mentions. Uh, Antonio Brown, he was a fantasy wide receiver too. He was third in, in week 14 to week 16. He has a 40 something point game, uh, during that stretch. So he won that week for you. Uh, Devante Adams was uh, overall wide receiver one through week 16. Uh, he was the wide receiver four from week 14 to week 16. He had a better year than I think most people expected out of him being drafted in the second round. And then I got to give him a shout out to Robbie Anderson, who I also have in our, uh, keeper league and uh, he he came up huge I, pi- I think I picked him up off the waiver wire in one or two leagues uh, once uh, Quincy Anunua went down it, it became clear that Robbie Anderson was going to explode and he did we, we, so he was the overall fantasy wide receiver two from week 14 to week 16 and you know along with Damian Williams and CJ Anderson he carried me to a couple fantasy championships uh, that makes you one of the best John in the industry and a little <laughs> bit of a scumbag as well so <laughs> Robbie Anderson and Damian Williams. Unreal. Yeah, my lineup is hilarious. Looking at it, and they were all scoring like 20 plus. It was great. Jeez. MVP for wide receiver this year. <laughs> uh, DeAndre Hopkins, got to go with him. Overall wide receiver four. He finished wide receiver one from week 14 to week 16 with a, a huge 39 point game in week 15, and he had a pretty solid uh, 19.4 in week 16. So, you know, just top to bottom, just a great season for Hopkins there uh, with Deshaun Watson at quarterback. All right, tight ends. This is always fun with these tight ends, especially when you get to the drop-off there. And with Rob oh. Gronkowski looking like uh, really a, a broken-down version, a shell of his former self, if you would, the, the, the drop-off is even more now with these tight ends. But you do have some best values. We'll start with those. You know, tight ends is a funny position because most of the, su- the summer I had Travis Kelsey – I might have had Zach Ertz as well. I had Gronk at three for most of the offseason, but then he was having a good, healthy offseason, and I kept moving him up a little bit, moving him up a little bit, and then I was like, okay, well, Edelman's out the first three games, so he's probably going to eat. And I ended up with uh, with uh, Gronk at one, uh, Kelsey at two, and Ertz at three. But in our FFPC draft where you get 1.5 
points per reception for tight ends, I had Kelsey on top. So we took, we had, uh, I think it was the 11th pick. So we took Kelsey at 202 and I was getting a lot of flack about, you know, passing on Gronk. And I was just like, dude, I don't, I don't think so. I think Kelsey's the pick there. And it, you know, after the first week where uh, Gronkowski had a huge game, Kelsey was kind of quiet. I was like regretting it a little bit, but then shortly thereafter, Kelsey just took over and never looked back. Uh, I'm going to go ahead and do all, th- all three categories here since i'm talking about travis kelsey he was a tight end one for the season he was a tight end three for the fantasy playoffs um you know honorable mentions george kittle he was tight end three for the season tight end one for the fantasy playoffs i give you know zach Ertz tight end two uh for for both the full season and for the fantasy playoffs i think best values you know kittle drafted tight end 13 he finished third uh, i also you know you look at I liked Jack Doyle heading in the season. I mean, I'm going to be completely honest with you. I th- and I think if he had stayed healthy, he would have been uh, had a good season. Uh, but Eric Ebron obviously was the tight end to own there in in, um, in Indianapolis. There, he and Jared Cook were both drafted in the 13th plus round, and they finished fourth and fifth respectively. So that just tells you how that how top heavy that tight end position is. And I still like, you know, heading into 2019, I really like grabbing, grabbing a Kelsey. Uh, Ertz or Kittle there in the third round if you can get them um, and then you've got your weapon at the tight end position those three guys are going to be great for years to come if you don't get them then you can really wait a long time and maybe draft one of these uh, cheaper guys uh, in the in the double digit rounds yeah not that you need it but let me back you up too on on Jack Doyle you know when you look at Frank Reich and when he came, where he came from which was the the Eagles when they won the Super Bowl last year he was uh, the OC there and the Eagles with the way that they use Zach Ertz, where they use their tight ends, I thought that Jack Doyle was going to be really good too. And I, I wouldn't sleep on him going into next season. I just think the, the tight end position is going to continue to be um, leaned on, used a lot, however you want to phrase it, with Frank Reich as the offensive coordinator. Slot, well, he's he's the, the head coach, but obviously he's the play caller. Let's, let's talk about draft lessons learned. We'll talk about some of the league-winning picks and the landmines in each of the first seven rounds. We'll start off with the first round. Did 2018 change your perception about whether or not to take a running back or a wide receiver in the first? You know, I'm going to have to study it a little bit closer. Uh, this was a year where those stud running backs, for the most part, in the first round uh, drastically outperformed uh, the guys in the second round. Uh, the, the, the wide receivers were okay. They were, they gave, they returned value as well, but the, the running back position was so top heavy, um, in terms of guaranteed touches, if you could have avoided, um, uh, Le'Veon Bell in the first round. And, you know, for example, I had, uh, McCaffrey ahead of Bell, you know, in my final rankings, uh, which hopefully led a lot of, <laughs> led, led subscribers to drafting McCaffrey over Bell, uh, you really avoided the landmine that was Le'Veon Bell. And if you did draft Le'Veon Bell, I believe I told people to, to pick up Connor as well, just so you're covered. Um, and then Connor's uh, ADP shot up into the middle rounds, and it got to be tougher to, in order to draft him. So uh, I came into the season saying you should draft a run, one running back in the first two rounds based on the drop-off of the position into the third, fourth, fifth, sixth round, uh, the diciness of those running backs then. And then, uh, so depending on whether or not you put, took a running back in the first round or took one in the second round, that, that strategy would have worked out. Um, I, generally speaking, I don't know how I feel about the, the just going zero RB and just drafting a bunch of wide receivers at the start of the year. I'm going to study the numbers a little bit more, but I, I you know, I, I think these, these 
bell cow running backs that, that we have here at the top of the draft are so valuable that it's really hard to pass them up when you can get somebody like a T.Y. Hilton or, or a Stefan Diggs uh, in the third round. Uh, so the wide receivers there in those middle rounds seem to be safer uh, than those running backs in those middle rounds. In the second round, there were several good wide receivers who stayed healthy and produced. They would be Julio Jones, who, hey, he found the end zone multiple times uh, this year. Michael Thomas, absolute stud. Keenan Allen, as consistent as they come, unless you are in a uh, fantasy fantasy uh, semifinal playoff game and he gets you a goose egg because he gets hurt. Otherwise, Keenan Allen is great. Uh, Devontae Adams, Mike Evans, those are all guys, again, that that were very good. They stayed healthy for the most part. A.J. Green also went in the second round, but he went down with an injury. At running back, you had Christian Christian McCaffrey. He turned into the number one running back this year in PPR formats after going off the board at uh, 2.02 on average. Otherwise, second-round running backs really struggled. You had Dalvin Cook who didn't do anything until the the final couple of weeks of the season. Devontae Freeman was essentially injured all season long. Jordan Howard, his role wasn't big enough. uh, Tariq Cohen got a lot of love from Matt Nagy, the the new head coach there in Chicago. And then there's Joe Mixon, who produced above expectations. So your thoughts in in the second round? Yeah, if you you had taken a wide receiver and it wasn't A.J. Green, you were probably in pretty good shape uh, in the second round of this, this year's draft, 2018 drafts. You know the, obvi- the the great start would be to take a a, a really solid uh, running back in the first round, and then uh, turn around and take uh, uh, Devonte Adams in the second round, or you know maybe Julio Jones and a Christian McCaffrey at the turn, uh, or maybe McCaffrey Devonte Adams at the turn would have been ideal. Uh, I don't know a whole lot of people are doing that because Devonte Adams was going towards the middle of the second round there with uh, AJ Green. So uh, at the running back position, it was really mixing or bust in the second round. Um, unless you're talking about McCaffrey at the turn. So other than McCaffrey, Mixon was the guy to get. If you ended up at the end of Devonta Freeman, uh, Jordan Howard, it was kind of, you know, meh. Uh, or if you took Robert Gronkowski, uh, you were, you're kind of wasted your second-round pick. In the third round, two tight ends went. They would be Travis Kelsey early in the third, and then Zach Ertz late. They both met expectations. It was a good round for wide receivers, especially at the top with Tyreek Hill, T.Y. Hilton, Adam Thielen, and Amari Cooper. Doug Baldwin and Larry Fitzgerald did not meet expectations. And then at running back, you had LaShawn McCoy, who went early in the third round, while Kenyon Drake went later in the round. So a couple of two running backs that really didn't work out either. Um, one in Kenyon Drake, who you mentioned earlier, who probably should have gotten a lot more carries at, under uh, Adam Gase, but but didn't. You know what's crazy about Drake is that we, we think he had a terrible year, but he ended up RB14 in PPR. That's not bad. RB2, so, solid. Yeah, I mean, it, you just never felt good starting him. Sure. <laughs> <laughs> and there were weeks and there were weeks where he lost you games because he didn't, you know, he didn't get touches. So that's a that's a weird thing about the running back position right now. That's why I think it enhances the value of those guys in the first round is that you're in the middle of the third round now and you have a guy who was drafted RB16, he finished 14, he looks like a you know, he looks like a failure. Uh so that's a good point. That's 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 kind of strange and then you got McCoy as well. And on our draft in FFPC, we had a late again the love of the pick, so we picked 311 and then 402. Uh, and we went uh, Julio and Kelsey in the first two rounds. So we're sitting here. I go. I was thinking to myself. I like these guys. In the you know Alex Collins finished really strong last year, uh, and we ended up with Collins and Lamar Miller. And Miller, you know, we'll talk about him a little bit. But he went in the fourth round most most drafts. He ended up doing okay. Obviously, Collins was a disappointment. You know, we would have been better off with Drake 
uh, in this situation, but really better off uh, trying to trying to target wide receivers uh, at that point in the draft. All right, so the fourth and fifth round, we'll talk about these two. This is this; these are two rounds that really, I wouldn't say killed me; it really hurt. Uh, one, I finished second in one league, and then I finished third in another. So I didn't have a terrible league, but I I had two big missteps in the fourth round and the fifth round of most of my drafts. So let's talk about the fourth round first. Some interesting names. You had Derrick Henry, Alex Collins, who was the guy I targeted in damn near every draft in the fourth round, and he got me. Jarvis Landry, Juju Smith-Schuster, Brandon Cooks, Allen Robinson, Golden Tate, Lamar Miller, and Josh Gordon. Those were your fourth-round picks. Yeah, and, and as it stands, and Juju was the right pick. Juju Smith-Schuster was the right guy to grab in this round. Uh, Cooks was also up there uh, at the end of the year in terms of fantasy points. So either one of those guys, you'd have been fine. I think Golden Tate, as I headed into the season, uh, I liked Smith-Schuster and Golden Tate, especially in PPR formats. Um, and he was delivering until he he got traded. He was the wide receiver 15 uh, for Detroit before that trade to Philly, so that kind of puts a whole damper on his um, stock uh, midseason because, you know, when you trade a player midseason, typically they're not going to perform. Amari Cooper was the exception to that. Golden Tate never was able to get uh, the consistent work uh, and didn't have the same rapport with the Philadelphia quarterbacks as he did with uh, Matthew Stafford in, in, in Denver and then or I'm sorry in Detroit but the the other player I wanted to mention was Mark Ingram you know he had that suspension at the start of the year he was RB 21 on a point per, per game basis and he was drafted as a you know number 22 running back off the board and that might seem fine um, but I think the reason he was 22 instead of maybe 14 was because of that suspension so I think owners that took him were expecting more production from him uh, throughout the his stretch as the as the RB two there in uh, in New Orleans in the fifth round our first QB Aaron Rodgers was drafted. You also had running backs Royce Freeman, Deion Lewis, Carlos Hyde, Rex Burkhead who killed me. I mentioned Alex Collins the previous round. Uh, Rex Burkhead I, I was in love with him in the fifth round and we all know how that turned out. Uh, Tevin Coleman who should have been great but Steve Sarkeesian just either refused to use him or um, you know didn't want to use him in the passing game. And then you had wide receivers Marvin Jones, Chris Hogan, Marquise Goodwin, Alshon Jeffrey, Julian Edelman, and Corey Davis. Boy, this was this wound up being kind of a rough round. Yeah, and you the right thing to do, as it turns out, was probably take Edelman. Uh, he ended up wide receiver eight from week five on in PPR formats. He had that suspension. That's why he was going uh, in the fifth round as opposed to the maybe the third, right? Uh, Alshon Jeffrey was wide receiver 17 from week four on, so he had... Uh, he gave you value, but he had that shoulder injury, so you know you were really worried about drafting him. Um, at that point in the draft, you just weren't sure about the injury. At least with Edelman, you knew he was coming off a of suspension and was fully healthy uh, in September. Uh, Marvin Jones was meeting uh, expectations prior to his injury. Uh, he was drafted wide receiver 24. I believe he was in the 20s, mid-20s uh, before his injury. Carlos Hyde uh, really looked like a pretty good pick. Uh, he was RB16. Uh, before the trade, and then uh, you know he was drafted RB twenty eight, so he was actually really outperforming uh, expectations. And then, of course, I'm sure his owners hated that trade to Jacksonville, uh, which opened up Nick Chubb. So after the trade, Nick Chubb was RB eight. So you have the Cleveland offense really looking like a a good uh, you know pr- uh, p- situation for Nick Chubb uh, heading into next season. He's probably going to be a top ten uh, fantasy back uh, for you. Uh, and then finally, the, the, the funny thing with 
Corey Davis is everybody was so disappointed in him. Uh, and I actually want to mention Tevin Coleman, too, because he finished RB18, but he was drafted 27th on, uh, amongst RB, RBs. So he actually returned good value, but once, he, once that Devonta Freeman injury happened, you were expecting a lot more, right, uh, right, out of Tevin Coleman. And then he had some substandard weeks, and you didn't feel comfortable starting him, and then he would blow up, and it was just one of those guys where you just couldn't trust him. And then Corey Davis, of course, became you know, you know, know, a lot of people tweeting at me about uh, why, why is Corey Davis uh, ranked so high this week. And I, you know, I had him in the mid twenties, and he ended up finishing twenty seventh. He was drafted as the twenty seventh wide receiver off the board, and he finished twenty seventh. So he met expectation, which is actually when you meet expectation, um, it's a successful season for that fantasy player. Even though it's not what we were hoping for, we were hoping he'd make that leap into the top fifteen. Uh, and I think part of that was the whole Marcus Mariota injury there, uh, kind of set back that whole entire passing offense. Uh, that's a really good point about expectation, certainly. All right, let's move on to the sixth round. A few more tight ends went. Graham Ingram Olsen, running backs were Marshawn Lynch, Chris Thompson, Sony Michelle, Jamal Williams, wide receivers were Crabtree, Emmanuel Sanders, Devin Funches, and the quarterbacks were Russell Wilson and Deshaun Watson. What did you learn from the sixth round? Yeah, this is getting interesting because you have a couple of tight ends a couple of quarterbacks so the positions are starting to mix in and then you have some running backs that are not that are rb1 types but not sure rb1 types uh and then some receivers on like michael crabtree who you know was really good with flacco and then um with lamar jackson things kind of took a turn uh i think the right pick here if you want to call it that was emmanuel sanders he was a wide receiver 15 uh, through uh, week 13 before his injury there. So he was really having a great season. He actually surpassed Demarius Thomas, and then they traded Demarius Thomas, and Sanders was pretty good all year, even though the quarterback situation wasn't great in Denver. Uh, my favorite pick around this range was Chris Thompson, and I really was stoked to see what he would do. But then, of course, injury struck. But through the first uh, uh, five weeks, he was the number 15 uh, PPR uh, running back. Uh, so he was really producing and then the injury struck and then uh it just never got back into the flow which was a bummer because i was excited to see what he would do as sort of the rb1a there with with uh, adrian peterson i think the way they used him in the first month showed what they wanted to do but then he could just never get healthy again and then marshawn lynch showing that he still had it he was rb14 through week six and then of course his injury uh submarine the rest of his season so you know you had a it was kind of a, a lot of landmines in this in this uh, round, and there was a couple of guys that really uh, produced well for you. And the, the main guy was was Sanders, and I, I think Sony Michelle towards the end of the season really uh, started to produce as well. But that was always dicey starting any of those uh, New England running backs. Moving on to the seventh round, we had a few gems here: Robert Woods being one of them, Chris Carson, uh, Tariq Cohen, Sammy Watkins, Cooper Cup, Will Fuller, Jamison Crowder. Those were the injury riddled wide receivers. Carry on Johnson was very good until he got hurt. Rashad Penny, dud. And then you had Duke Johnson. Those <laughs> those were the young running backs. And it's no, no shot on Rashad Penny. I mean, it's just Chris Carson was would prove to be better. Yeah, they were both going around the same round, which is funny. So who would you pick? And and this was one of those situations where you had the high high stakes, uh, high capital uh, first round running back, Rashad Penny, who just never was able to uh, usurp uh, Carson as the, you know, and, and to his credit, Pete Carroll said that Carson was looking great and was going to be the starter. And that's what happened. He ended up RB 15. Uh, Woods was our wide receiver 10. We talked about him earlier. Tariq Cohen, RB 11, uh, started to get a lot of work in the passing game there for Matt Nagy. Uh, so that was great. Uh, Cooper Cup really 
was a standout receiver in this round. He was averaging uh, 19.1 fantasy points in his seven non-injury games uh, there for the Rams. So look for him uh, to have a bounce back season next next year. Will Fuller was really good with Deshaun Watson again. He had 15.2 points per game in his seven games. Obviously, Fuller is a uh, more of a big play guy and uh, is going to have some duds for you, but he can also put up 150 yards and two touchdowns uh, pretty easily. So, um, you know, this was a, another round where if you could grab a grab a Woods, uh, it's a kind of a game changer to get him in the seventh round. Uh, Carson, you know, Cohen, uh, those guys, you know, kind of turn seasons around uh, when they when they really establish themselves as the top options in their in their respective offenses. That takes us through the first seven rounds. Any other thoughts from looking at the rest of the ADP? Yeah, I mean, I, I kept scrolling down uh, my spreadsheet here, and you, you have Matt uh, Matt Ryan uh, and Patrick Mahomes. I should have mentioned Patrick Mahomes first. Uh, Mahomes and Matt Ryan both <laughs> going in the eleventh round. They finished one and two in fantasy. Uh, so I think once again, wait on quarterback. And you know, in my FFPC draft, I took Aaron Rodgers at the, you know in this six at six oh one because I thought, well, you know, this is pretty late for Rodgers. And then the other guys that were there, I didn't love. Uh, we didn't love, and we talked ourselves into Rodgers, and we were regretting it the entire season because we we actually had a discussion prior to the draft that we were going to try to get Mahomes, and then uh, you know Rodgers just kept falling, falling, falling to us, and we we're like, oh, we're going to have to take Rodgers, and we did, and it was kind of a disappointing season. He got injured. Uh, obviously, everything happened. With Matt, uh, Mike McCarthy blew up. Wait on quarterback. I'm going to get it tattooed on the inside of my eyelids, I think, uh, so that I don't, at FFPC, I don't take a quarterback again before the double digit rounds. And, you know, I think I'll be uh, looking at Jameis Winston really hard. Um, some other guys at the running back position. So if you do take a running back in the first couple rounds or in the first round where you get a guy like Ezekiel Elliott or Alvin Kamara or some, you know, Todd Gurley, uh, maybe you don't draft running back for a while and then you start to look at this, at this, this mid to late round group uh, because Nick Chubb, Aaron Jones, James White, Marlon Mack, who I, we talked about Marlon Mack quite a bit during draft season as a player I liked, didn't it took him a while to sort of get established, but then really blew up. He's gonna he's looking good at going into next year. Adrian Peterson, Matt Breda, Austin Eckler, they all finished in the top thirty in PPR uh, in the running back ranks at PPR, and they were all drafted in the eighth round or later. So. You know, maybe you look at that versus a, um, you know, a Kenyon Drake. Um, you'd rather have the the Chubb or the you know the Aaron Jones for the stretch that he had, or the James White who really was a top ten, twelve PPR back. Uh, so, you know, maybe maybe you're looking at a, a stud running back hitting wide receiver for a while, and then once you get into these cheaper running backs, and other people are scrambling to draft tight ends or. Uh, receivers or whatever, you start to pluck some of these talented. You're looking at Nick Chubb, Aaron Jones, James White, Marlon Mack, Adrian Peterson, who's just old but also was getting a lot of volume. Matt Breda, Austin Eckler, these talented uh, running backs that had sort of part-time roles, and then you sort of, and this is that this is that, um, you know, zero RB philosophy where you're waiting for an injury. In the case of Chubb, is it was a trade. In the case of Jones, it was his talent. He just beat out Jamal Williams. Uh, in case of White, it was an injury with Zach, uh, Rex Burkhead. Um, so you wait for those guys to emerge, and now you've got your RB two uh, and RB three for the rest of the season. Uh, at you know, at tight end George Kittle, fantastic pick in the ninth or tenth round. I think a lot of people saw that coming. I think he started to creep up into the seventh eighth round. Um, so we'll have to see who the how the tight end ranks. To see if we can find somebody like him. 
Uh, there's always seems to be one or two guys that's kind of an upside uh, tight end that goes later than he should. And, you know, maybe OJ Howard is somebody like that, but he's, he's going in the eighth round I, I saw. So that's a little bit of a pricey uh, pick, but I think he'll, he'll have a good season. And I'm really interested to see Chris Godwin where he ends up. He was 20, he finished 28th. He was being drafted wide receiver 62 uh, when he had a chance to to play 70, 80% of the snaps and get six to eight, six to 10 targets per game. He produced major numbers. He's a, I think he's a really good player. Dynasty, I'm still buying on him. Uh, want to see where it happens with uh, Deshaun Jackson if he leaves? I'm gonna I'm gonna be loving Godwin as a top 25 uh, wide receiver next year. All right, John, you've uh, you've talked a lot, so I'll, I'll take over for a little bit. I am interested to hear any thoughts that you have in the championship games. But uh, for those interested, I will have a breakdown of both games with a with a pick. Um, but I'll, I'll kind of give you my quick hit version of of, of both games here. I'm actually going to fade public perception when it comes to the championship games. I think in the NFC championship game, we got that. That's the first one between the Rams and the Saints. You go back to last week and you can make the case of, okay, well, Saints really struggled against the Eagles who were knocking on the door of another upset until Alshon Jeffrey had the ball go through his hands and wound up being in a game-sealing interception, whereas the Rams dominated the Cowboys even though the score, the final score was within uh, eight points, so within one possession and a two-point conversion, the Rams pretty pretty much whipped them. There, to some degree, that is that is still accurate. Although I would say, look, the the Rams aren't going to have as easy of a time as they did running the football on Sunday as they did last week against Dallas. They had Dallas's defensive front down to a science. They knew when they were going to stunt their linebackers, those athletic linebackers that Dallas had. I thought was going to be an advantage. Wound up being exact opposite, where it was detrimental to them because Leighton Vander Esch and Jalen Smith got pushed around all night to the point where they had a bench Leighton Vander Esch, who had an excellent rookie season, and bring back uh, Sean Lee for most of that second half. But when you look at this Rams running game, C.J. Anderson has been great, Todd Gurley is outstanding, but the Saints have been one of the top run defenses in the league this year. So, one, you're not going to have uh, as easy of time, and I think it's going to come down to Jared Goff having to make a play in the third or fourth quarter, lean heavily on that passing game. And they've, yes, the Sean McVay's system has been great all year long, but Jared Goff has really struggled since that Monday night game against the Chiefs. You look at his numbers and, you know, fantasy perspective, real life perspective, Goff hasn't been as great. The Saints don't lose in the Superdome. I mean, they've, they've just been fantastic with Sean Payton and Drew Brees. Uh, in New Orleans, and I just don't see him losing on Sunday. So I would leave. The, I would. I would lay the three points. I realize that Aqib Talib is back, and that certainly is critical for the Rams' defense. But I, I expect Sean um, Payton to move My, Michael Michael uh, Thomas inside, where Aqib Talib and Marcus Peters don't want to really be in the slot. They're uncomfortable there. And Peyton's so good, he'll he'll mix it up. And I thought, John, that third quarter last week with the Saints and the Eagles really told a lot. The Saints took eight minutes off the clock. Part of that had to do with a touchdown being called back and a couple of penalties. Nevertheless, they, they played ball control. They showed that they can do that. They showed that they have balance, and I think they can keep the Rams' offense off the field in stretches. AFC Championship game, I'll keep this even shorter. You don't make a lot of money betting against Bill Belichick and Tom Brady. However... Their road issues you know, all season long have been problematic. They went 3-5 and five, as opposed to 8-0 at uh, Gillette Stadium this year. I, I don't care about the cold. I don't care really about the weather. Apparently it's supposed to be a little bit warmer than, than what they would expect. Chiefs are a better team, and defensively they, they have gotten better 
uh, over the, the last month or so, and they certainly play better at home. Patriots are a different team away from the road. And I really think that, and last week I had the Patriots. I said, if you're going to, if you're going to load up on any team, load up on the Patriots because everything kind of worked out well. You had the bye week. The Chargers had been, had been, uh, traveling a lot. Patriots are at home. And then with the Chargers never made any defensive adjustments, Brady shredded them. It's not going to be that way in Kansas City. They'll play a little bit more man under Bob Sutton. They've got three good pass rushers in Chris Jones, D. Ford, and, and Justin Houston, and Patrick Mahomes, Tyree Kill, Travis Kelsey. Everybody's well aware of the weapons that they have. I just think it's Andy Reid's time. So I like both. I, I like chalk this weekend. I like both home teams. I'm going with the Saints at minus three. I'm going with the Chiefs minus three. Any thoughts? Uh, Championship Sunday for you, John? Yeah, I would just say I'm rooting for the Saints Chiefs uh, Super Bowl. And if it can't be Saints Chiefs, then my second choice is Rams Chiefs. I don't. I think we're all Chiefs this weekend. Everybody outside of New England. Yeah, probably. Uh, we, <laughs> we would just love to have a Super Bowl uh, without Tom Brady and uh, and Bill Belichick this year. Unless, unless you just love rooting against them and want to see them lose again in the Super Bowl. Um, I think last week was the was the was the flat performance maybe from the from the Saints. They got off to the bad start. They were down fourteen. That was the maybe the, the the opportunity that the league had to beat the Saints in the in the Superdome but they took control of that game and and uh, won it a lot with their defense yeah. and their defense is not great necessarily great uh, uh, you know against the pass but they're very good against the run that's the strength of the of the Rams with Todd Gurley and CJ Anderson so we'll see if they're able to even run the ball on the Saints and as you mentioned Goff has been struggling and his I sent you some splits I think with uh, yeah, his splits with uh, with Cooper Cup uh, out, uh, he has just has not been the same quarterback, and that may correspond with something else going on in the offense. But you know, having that third really dangerous option, uh, they do have Josh Reynolds, uh, but it just hasn't been the same for for Jared Goff, and I don't think they're going to be able to outscore the Saints, uh, who should be able to put up more points this uh, this week than, than they did against the, the the Eagles. And of course, the Chiefs, Patriots. I'm terrified of the Patriots uh, in the playoffs <laughs> and, all, and all that, but. Uh, you know the Chiefs' defense has played significantly better at home. Um, they did have a kind of an easy schedule at home, and the and the um, the the Ravens and the Chargers late in the season did score over twenty points uh, against the Chiefs. But I think the Chiefs are a pretty safe bet to score more than that, and almost thirty uh, uh, against the Patriots. The Patriots' defense is not fast, and the Chiefs' offense is fast. So I think we'll, you know, Tyree Kill had three touchdowns and. Uh, in that first game against the Patriots. So I think we'll uh, see some more of that uh, this season. I just want to mention, or this this week, I want to mention that uh, Anthony's betting picks uh, during the regular season were an amazing 53-29-3. Uh, I did I ran the numbers, and that would have won the betting pros contest. Betting pros is an offshoot of the fantasy pros rankings uh, contest, the same, I think, people run it. Uh, they do require that their uh, prognosticators pick at least five games per week, which I noticed that you didn't do every single week, but you did most weeks. Looks like you had five. Yeah. Um, yeah. If you count the thir- yeah, Thursday, four. yeah. If you, if you count the Thursday and, and Monday night games, definitely. Yeah. So you would have won that and you, you documented your picks all year and they're all out there for everybody to see. Uh, you would have won that contest, uh, this year so congratulations even though you didn't win it you didn't enter it we didn't know about it uh but uh you know next season as we head into uh the 2020 season or 2019 season you know if you're betting people out there you should definitely pay attention to anthony's picks he does great analysis uh and uh, does a tremendous job with it so uh kudos to you anthony for for 
foe winning that contest. <laughs> I, I appreciate it, John. Thank you. It means a lot. I mean, seriously, you and I have worked together for a long time, and I, I've respected your, your work uh, dating back to our, our previous employer. And, you know, as we've mentioned a couple of times on the podcast, John and I have known each other for a long time. I think we've only met one time, though, which is kind of funny, um, with you being yeah, out in California. Yeah, me in uh, Chicago, which is my hometown now. I'm in St. Louis. But anyways, long story short, just uh, the, the work that you, got, that you do – from a fantasy perspective, and you, you always rank highly in fantasy pros um, and the, the, all the content that everybody does at 44.com, I was really hoping that, yeah, I mean, you, you want to have a winning record. This is the first time 444.com did any kind of betting picks. And, you know, I know John, uh, Josh really took a, a chance saying, okay, hey, let, let's go with it and to, to have the, the sex, the, uh, the sex, yeah, to have the sex we had, the success that we had. Um, this season, this season was was a lot of fun. So I, I appreciate the the kudos, John, big time. You bet. And I and I just want to say I don't want to start a beef with anybody that at betting pros or that competed over there. Kevin English from Draft Sharks, he's the one that won the contest. Uh, Seventy nine and forty five, fantastic, sixty three point seven percent. That's amazing. Uh, winning percentage. So so congratulations to him. I you know I'll do, you didn't enter the contest, so yeah. whatever. <laughs> but it, you would have done very well. Let's just say that. Um, so, uh, congratulations to you. And, and, and I would like to just thank all the listeners who are stuck around and are here for the hour plus long wrap up for 2018. We had a great year at four for four. Uh, I think we did a good job in DFS the rankings were, were pretty good. Uh, I finished 12th in the, uh, fancy pros accuracy rankings. I was eighth heading into the final week, uh, within spitting distance of the top five. And I thought I had a really good week. It turned out that I was, had a so-so week. So I dropped uh, to 12th. Uh, but that's out of 135, 140 um, uh, experts over there that they track. Uh, it's my ninth straight season in the top 16. That's fantastic. Uh, so, yeah, and the, the competition's getting a little tougher, and we're going to look at ways to refine our rankings and to, to try to make our accuracy a little bit better uh, as we do every offseason. So we're looking forward to, forward to a great 2019, and now we've got uh, the betting, betting covered now with Anthony Stalter. So. Uh, it's going to be a great, uh, great year, I think. You know, you're good when you're when you're you're. I could hear the disappointment in your voice, and I know you being a, uh, as competitive as you are. You know, you're good when you, you finish 12th out of a, a hundred plus uh, contestants, and you're like, ah, that was kind of a down year. So, no, it, it definitely <laughs> was great at, at four for four. But as John just kind of alluded to, we're it would just be John and I talking to ourselves if if without you, the listener on our podcast, and without you, the reader at four for four dot com. So. Uh, thank you, and I, I, I really hope that everybody comes back next year. And hey, tell your friends. Tell your friends at 44.com. Helped you win a fantasy league or win some money this year in betting, and uh, we'll continue to, to, to produce good content for you. We'll be back at some point in March to discuss free agency and then again in late April, early May, for a discussion about the fantasy impact of the draft. Until then, for John Paulson, I'm Anthony Stalter. Appreciate you so much. Joining us on 444.com's The Most Accurate Podcast. We'll be back in about uh, two months or so, a little less than two months, and we'll, we'll take a look at free agency and eventually the draft. So long. Good luck this weekend if you're betting anything championship. And uh, you know if you've got a favorite team that, that's playing this weekend, good luck to them as well. We'll see you next time. I'm just tired. She said I'm looking like a bad man. She said my spirit doesn't move like it did before. She said that I don't look like me.